Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by... Dr. Jimmy Turner, your guide to practical leadership at drjimmyturner.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. Previously on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. We're talking about remote viewing and the U.S. government's psychic spying program, Stargate. The government wanted to find out if psychic powers really exist and whether they could be used to help our intelligence agencies like the CIA. The psychic power that seemed most promising was known as remote viewing. The scientists were working with psychics. Who was the first one that they brought into their studies? His name was Ingo Swan. Swan was the single most important psychic because he was responsible for key developments in the study of remote viewing. At the commencement of the experiment, a disinterested third party would randomly select an envelope. Swan would be given the name of the city thus selected and then would provide his impressions of the current weather there. Swan correctly got the fact that Tucson was having very unusual weather, and Swan was able to do this successfully in a repeated fashion. Ingo suggested the term remote viewing, and a new discipline, a new research program, and ultimately a new era in parapsychology was launched. Jimmy, can you give me your bottom line here? I think remote viewing is a very intriguing phenomenon. The evidence for it being real is significant enough that you have a president of the American Statistical Association saying its results far exceed chance, and you have a skeptic like Ray Hyman acknowledging that the evidence looks promising and he could change his mind. On the other hand, if the ability is real, it's weak and it generates a lot of noise. So you have to be careful with it and not believe everything a remote viewer says, especially when it comes to anomaly targets. At least on its face, the phenomenon presents itself as a natural one, in which case Aquinas would say you can use it. You're listening to episode 117 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about alien bases on the moon. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Years ago, the physicist Enrico Fermi pondered the question of intelligent extraterrestrial life and asked, where is everybody? So starting in the 1940s, some people began claiming that the aliens are here, that they've been visiting Earth. Some also began to suspect that they might have secret bases on the moon. And as we started exploring the moon, rumors of these bases only became more common. In 1998, government psychic Ingo Swan published a book called Penetration, The Question of Extraterrestrial and Human Telepathy. In it, he described a series of remote viewing experiments he was hired to do by a secretive government organization. The experiments suggested an alien presence on the moon. And soon, Swan even thought he encountered the aliens here on Earth. So what should we make of his experiments? Are there aliens on the moon? 
And are they here on Earth? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Uh, so, Jimmy, it's been a while since we had a UFO-related mystery. Yeah, it definitely has. Uh, that doesn't mean I've forgotten about the subject. I know a lot of people like the alien-themed mysteries, but there have been some scheduling issues, so it's been a while since we've had one. I've got lots of plans, though, for those kind of mysteries appearing on the show on a regular basis in the future, so I want to thank the alien fans for their patience. There's a lot more to come, and we will be covering UFO-related mysteries in the future, some of which will have more solid evidence behind them, and some of which will be more for fun. As a reward to the UFO fans, this mystery will be a two-parter. In this episode, we'll tell the story that Ingo Swan related of the events that he said happened to him between 1975 and 1977, which involves remote viewing and secret alien bases on the moon. And then next episode, we'll go into analysis mode and look at Ingo's claims from the faith and reason perspectives. Yeah, so we've heard Ingo Swan's name before. So can you give us a brief reminder? Who was Ingo Swan? He was an artist who was originally from Colorado, but who spent most of his adult life in New York City. He passed on in 2013 at the age of 79. In 1971, he became involved with the American Society for Psychical Research as one of its test subjects. Initially, they had him doing a lot of experiments trying to identify objects and images that were in the room with him, but hidden from his view. But Ingo was an artist, and he had an artistic temperament, which meant that he was easily bored and inclined to quit if he didn't get his way. So he insisted on more challenging experiments, such as trying to view distant locations. In a famous set of experiments, he began viewing the weather in remote cities, and so this technique became known as remote viewing. That led Ingo to work with a couple of scientists named Hal Putoff and Russell Targ, who worked for the Stanford Research Institute, or SRI, which is a government contractor. The work he did for them was so impressive that the CIA and the Defense Department became interested in it and hoped to use it for espionage purposes. That led Ingo to refine the remote viewing process into a series of controlled stages to make it more reliable and more accurate, as well as something that could be taught to people who were not natural psychics. This, in turn, became the basis of the government's psychic spying program, which ran from 1977 to 1995, and which was known as Project Stargate. We'll be talking about Stargate in a future episode, but today we'll be discussing a set of events that occurred in the 1970s while Ingo was working for SRI. So, Jimmy, tell me, what was Swan's religion? During part of his life, Ingo was a Scientologist. However, he later broke with the Church of Scientology. Before he published his book, Penetration, he had become much more friendly to Christianity in general and to Catholicism in particular. In fact, just two years earlier, in 1996, he published a book called The Great Apparitions of Mary, an examination of 22 supranormal appearances. In this book, he took a positive look at Marian apparitions. These included appearances of the Virgin Mary from Our Lady of Guadalupe in 1531 to Our Lady of Fatima in 1917. It also included La Salette, Lourdes, and Knock, all the way down to the approved apparition of Cabejo in 1981. And it included some unapproved apparitions, 
We've discussed some of the apparitions that Ingo covered in previous episodes, like episodes 40, 60, 64, and 65, and we'll look at others in the future. Some of the apparitions that he covers in his book are problematic in various ways, like Bayside. So listeners should be aware of that. But he had clearly come a long way from his Scientology days, and in his book on Marian apparitions, he makes an effort to deal with current canon law and thanks the Archdiocese of New York for helping him, along with individual Mariologists, including Catholic, Anglican, and Protestant Mariologists. Here's part of what he had to say in the epilogue of the book. When the accounts of thousands upon thousands of eyewitnesses to the holy apparitions are heeded, when the apparitions are considered in their social-political contexts, when the amazing phenomena are fairly presented— the celestial events, the warnings, the fulfilled predictions, the cures, the other astonishing phenomena, when the photographs taken at Zeitoun are considered, what are we to think? If we try to be as practical, as pragmatic as possible, as logical, and perhaps even as scientific as possible, what are we to conclude? Surely it must be admitted that something truly remarkable took place at each of the great apparitions considered in this book. And what of the Holy Mother's signal request, reiterated again and again in all of the great speaking apparitions? Pray, 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 pray for peace, be reconciled. Those who truly do pray for peace, whether Catholic, Protestant, Coptic, or otherwise, are unlikely to be among those who devote themselves to creating violence. Great apparitions of the Holy Mother have occurred on an average of about every ten years or so during the modern period. The last two of the great apparitions took place during the very early 1980s, those in Yugoslavia and in Rwanda. So we are slightly overdue for another great one. Then two years after this book was released in 1996, Ingo published Penetration in 1998. And so that gives you an idea of where he was on his faith journey at this time. So how did the events he describes in Penetration begin? As in other cases, it started with an experiment that Ingo did that attracted the attention of someone else. In this case, the experiment was one he did in 1973 while he was working with SRI scientists Targ and Putoff. Ingo had already tested his powers against distant targets like remote cities in America and other sites around the Earth, But now he wanted to test them across even greater distances, going off the planet entirely. In their 1977 book, Mind Reach, Targ and Putoff explain, Perhaps one of the most exciting possibilities, and one that we had a chance to observe, is the application of remote viewing to the exploration of space. As far-fetched as this may seem, we have excellent statistical data that this phenomenon works around the globe so that the possibility of extending its functioning to regions away from the Earth cannot be discounted. On the other hand, we have to admit that when Ingo Swan proposed such a study, we resisted for the simple reason that, as a laboratory experiment, the resulting descriptions would by and large be impossible to verify, and those that we could verify by available data would not constitute proof of anything. Unlike our earthbound experiments, we were not likely to send a panel of judges to the target destination for some time. Ingo held his ground, however, indicating that he and the noted sensitive Harold Sherman of Mountain View, Arkansas, had already arranged to remote view Jupiter before the upcoming Pioneer 10 flyby in the hopes that they might beat it to some discovery. In Penetration, Ingo tells how he held his ground this way. 
the resistance to the Jupiter probe was overcome when I said, I quit and you can return what's left of the money to the funding clients. So, as on other occasions, Ingo threatened to quit if he didn't get his way and relieve the boredom he was having from just doing routine experiments. And the Pioneer 10 flyby gave them a unique opportunity. At the time, not nearly as much was known about Jupiter since we'd only been able to study it with Earthbound telescopes, but the probe had already been launched and wouldn't reach Jupiter until December of 1973. It also wouldn't begin returning significant data about Jupiter until September, so they had several months as a window in which to do a remote viewing experiment. There was also a second probe, Pioneer 11, that was on its way to Jupiter and that would arrive a year later in December of 1974, so there would be a second chance to check the information the remote viewing produced. If Ingo and the psychic from Mountain View, Arkansas, Harold Sherman, could pick up on facts about Jupiter that would only be discovered during the Pioneer flybys, this would count as evidence that remote viewing could be used over such distances. The fact that the information wasn't already known to science meant it couldn't be looked up in advance, and the fact that Pioneer 10 might confirm it would be evidence for remote viewing working at interplanetary distances. And by the way, I remember when these flybys happened and we suddenly learned new stuff about Jupiter that we had never known before. It was very exciting for a kid interested mm -hmm. in space in the 1970s. Also, Mountain View, Arkansas is up in the Ozark Mountains near where I grew up in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Put-off and Targ thus arranged for Ingo and Harold Sherman to do simultaneous remote viewing experiments on Friday, April 27, 1973, at 6 p.m. California time and 8 p.m. Arkansas time. So they were taking place at the same moment. And here's the transcript they made from Ingo's session. Don will read the part of Ingo Swan, and I'll read the part of Hal Put-off. There's a planet with stripes. I hope it's Jupiter. I think that it must have an extremely large hydrogen mantle. If a space probe made contact with that, it would be maybe 80,000 to 120,000 miles out from the planet's surface. So I'm approaching it on the tangent where I can see it's a half moon, in other words, half lit, half dark. If I move around to the lit side, it's distinctly yellow toward the right. Which direction did you have to move? Very high in the atmosphere, there are crystals. They glitter. Maybe the stripes are like bands of crystals. Maybe like rings of Saturn, though not far out like that. Very close within the atmosphere. I bet you they'll reflect radio probes. Is that possible if you had a cloud of crystals that were assaulted by different radio waves? That's right. Now I'll go down through. It feels really good here. I said that before, didn't I? Inside those cloud layers, those crystal layers, they look beautiful from the outside. From the inside, they look like rolling gas clouds, eerie yellow light, rainbows. I get the impression, though I don't see, that it's liquid. Then I came through the cloud cover. The surface, it looks like sand dunes. They're made of very large grade crystals, so they slide. Tremendous winds, sort of like maybe the prevailing winds of Earth, but very close to the surface of Jupiter. From that view, the horizon looks orangish or rose-colored, but overhead it's kind of greenish-yellow. If I look to the right, there's an enormous mountain range. If I'm giving a description of where I've gone and am, it would be approximately where Alaska is if the sun were directly overhead, which it is. 
The sun looks like it has a green corona. Seems smaller to me. What color is the sun? White. I feel that there's liquid somewhere. Those mountains are very huge, but they still don't poke up through the crystal cloud cover. You know, I had a dream once, something like this, where the cloud cover was a great arc, sweeps over the entire heaven. Those grains which make that sand orange are quite large. They have a polished surface, and they look something like amber or like obsidian, but they're yellowish and not as heavy. The wind blows them. They slide along. If I turn, the whole thing seems enormously flat. I mean, if I get the feeling that if a man stood on those sands, I, I think he would sink into them. Maybe that's where that liquid feeling comes from. I see something that looks like a tornado. Is there a thermal inversion here? I bet there is. I bet you that the surface of Jupiter will give a very high infrared count. The heat is held down. I seem to be stuck. Not moving. I'll move towards the equator. I get the impression that that must be a band of crystals similar to the outer ones. Kind of bluish. They seem to be sort of in orbit, permanent orbit, down through another layer farther down, which are like our clouds, but moving fast. There's another area. Liquid like water. Looks like it's got icebergs in it, but they're not icebergs. Tremendous wind. It's colder here. Maybe it's because there's not a thermal inversion here. I'm back. Okay. Very interesting. The atmosphere of Jupiter is very thick. I mean... At this point, Ingo drew a sketch of what he saw, which he explained this way. This is what appears to be a hydrogen mantle about 100,000 miles off the surface. Those here are bands of crystals, kinds of elements. They're pretty close to the surface. And beneath those are layers of clouds or what seem to be prevailing winds. Beneath that is the surface, which I saw was, well, it looked like shifting sands made out of some sort of slippery granulated stuff. And off in the distance, I guess, to the east, was a very high mountain chain, 30,000 feet or so, quite large mountains. I feel these crystals will probably bounce radio waves. They're that type. Generally, that's all. Notably, Swan's sketch included a pronounced ring around the planet. And over in Arkansas, Harold Sherman was reporting many, though not all, of the same details as Swan. How well did Ingo's remote viewing of Jupiter hold up in light of what the Pioneer probes and later ones have discovered? There are different ways of evaluating it. First, some of the things they reported were either already known or could have been reasonably guessed based on the science of the day, so they can't be counted as evidence for remote viewing. Second, some of the things they reported can't be verified one way or the other because we haven't sent probes capable of verifying them, so they can't be counted as evidence either. Third, remote viewing, if it exists, is supposed to be a fairly weak natural sense, and a good bit of what it reports isn't accurate. According to some of the statistics I've heard, a trained remote viewer can be expected to make contact with the target about two-thirds of the time, so a third is just miss. And if they're in contact with the target, the information they come back with will be between 35 and 80 percent accurate, though that's still supposed to be way above chance. Since Jupiter is often referred to as a gas giant, you might wonder about Ingo's descriptions of its core. However, even though it has a thick atmosphere, Jupiter is thought to have a more solid core, and one which is actually a lot bigger than Earth. 
the most recent information we have based on the Juno probe that went into orbit around Jupiter in 2016, from that it appears that Jupiter has a kind of slushy, fuzzy core that could correspond to the kind of impression that Ingo had of something like sand dunes made of big chunks and kind of being slippery and you might sink into it. The core is also thought to be irregular in shape which could account for the impression he got of big mountains. Uh, but we know too little to score these claims as either a hit or a miss. The one really definite hit was the ring that Swan drew around the planet. At the time, this was not expected. Scientists did not think that Jupiter had a ring system like Saturn. In fact, the ring system at Jupiter is faint enough that the Pioneer probes didn't even detect it. But it was verified in 1979 by Voyager 1, and that verification made Ingo's experiment famous. But Ingo didn't have to wait until the rings were discovered before things were set in motion. The scientists wrote up a report on the experiment and sent it to various places. Among those who received it was the CIA, and we'll have a link to where you can read the report in the CIA's online reading room. And when the results started coming in from the Pioneer probes, they confirmed enough of what Ingo had said that it led to the next phase of our story. And how did that play out? In February of 1975, after the data from Pioneer 10 and 11 had come in, Ingo got a call from a friend who he describes as a highly placed functionary in Washington, D.C. Hey, Mr. Axelrod is going to telephone you. If you can manage to do so, would you try to do whatever he asks and ask no questions yourself? Well, who is Mr. Axelrod? I can't tell you because I don't know myself, but it's important, very important, very urgent that you agree to do what he asks. I can tell you nothing more, so please do not ask. Just do what he wants, and whether you do or do not, we will never refer to this conversation again. I must ask you in friendship never to refer to me about this in any way. About four weeks later, so in March of 1975, Mr. Axelrod called Ingo at three in the morning. The call jolted me out of a sound sleep, so of course at first I didn't quite remember who he was. After we got that straightened out, he asked, Can you get to Washington, D.C. by noon today? I, I realize it's short notice, but we would be very appreciative if you can. We'll reimburse you for your time and all your expenses. I was just about to ask why I should get to Washington by noon when I remembered that my friend had been very insistent that I not ask questions, so I said I would take the air shuttle or something. Good, but we can't meet you at the airport. Are you familiar with the Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian? I said I was. Good. As soon as you arrive, go there and stand near the elephant in the central rotunda. Be there at noon. You will be contacted. Just do exactly as your contact asks. My only requirement is that you tell no one where you're going. If you feel you cannot do that, please say so now, and we'll forget about this. I sat in silence. Is that okay with you? Uh, yes, I suppose so. But I couldn't resist one question, which seemed a logical one. How will I recognize 
know what you look like. And Mr. Axelrod then hung up without so much as a goodbye. Ingo then got out of bed and took a shuttle from New York to Washington, where he spent several hours looking at the crystal and mineralogical exhibits in the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. At noon, he went to Henry, the elephant in the central rotunda. Behind me, a voice spoke. Mr. Swan. I turned and was immediately handed a card which read, Please do not speak or ask any questions. This is for our safety as well as yours. If I'd not been convinced before that I was getting into something suspicious, I was now certain. For the guy who handed me the card stared at me with burning green eyes, which clearly indicated he meant business. I didn't dare speak. He was young and looked like he could have posed for a marine recruitment poster, which is to say, he was masculine and military. I sensed he was serious and that his complacency concealed an ability to kill very quietly. But even more astonishing was the fact that there were two of them, which as far as I could tell were twins. Dozens of museum visitors were flowing all around us. After reading the card, I blinked. The first guy pulled out a photograph, which I could see was of me. He studiously compared the photograph face to mine. He then took my hand as if he was shaking it and compared the tattoo on it to another photograph, the tattoo I had gotten as a result of a rather drunken desire in 1962. He then nodded to his duplicate, who had been watching the rotunda in a professional way, and this twin came over and repeated the sequence. They then both initialed what seemed to be a kind of check-it sheet in a small address booklet. The twins then took him out of the museum and got him in a car, which had a lady driver behind the wheel. Ingo had the impression that they were the middle car in a three-car convoy, with one car driving in front of them and a follow-up car behind them as well. In the car, they handed him more cards, which told him not to speak, that they needed to search him for listening devices, which they did, and that they needed to place a hood over his head for a helicopter flight to their final destination. Well, I concluded, I'm either really being kidnapped or whatever is about to go down is something extraordinary. And kidnapping was a thing in the 1970s. There were a number of notable kidnappings back then. But if they were kidnappers, the twins were very polite about it. They never manhandled him. They let him smoke his cigars. They gave him sandwiches. And they only put the hood over his head right before the helicopter ride. After about 30 minutes of flying around in the helicopter, they landed. And the twins took him into a building and then into an elevator, which went down into an underground location. Out of the elevator, they turned him around several times, walked him a considerable distance, and sat him down in a chair. Then he heard the voice of Mr. Axelrod, who said, I'm going to remove your hood now, Mr. Swan, and thank you for coming, as well as putting up with our procedures. Mr. Axelrod was a jolly guy type, smiling, with kindly eyes, but dressed in a dark green jumpsuit of some kind. He continued, I can answer no questions as to where you are or what we represent, but beyond that, I'm at your complete disposal with regard to anything that pertains to the task ahead. Mustering what dignity I could, which really was not much, I croaked out, Well, what task then? Mr. Axelrod smiled. First, there are some procedural matters. We will reimburse you for your expenses and provide what we will call an honorarium. Would $1,000 a day be suitable? We'll provide this in cash before you leave. A day? I croaked again. How many days? Well, we have heard that you work best in the morning, and as it is now in the afternoon, we'll 
begin the task tomorrow morning at any time which suits you. After that, we'll wing it a little. A thousand bucks a day. I perked up and stopped croaking and even tried to say something sensible. So if you know about the morning thing, then you must be very familiar with our procedures out at Stanford Research Institute. We know a great deal about you, Mr. Swan. You seem to be an exceptional man, and of course, it is your psychic gifts we want to try to employ with regard to the task. My psychic gifts, as you must then know, are very undependable. I work only in experimental situations, and I hardly think anyone should risk anything really serious on them. We fully understand, Mr. Swan. We do not see the task as a risk, so do not feel stressed about that. A second preliminary. We would like to ask you never to reveal any of the details about any of this, including your presence here. If the circumstances were otherwise, we would ask you to sign a secrecy agreement. But bluntly speaking, we exist without leaving a paper trail regarding our mission. Mr. Axelrod paused to let that sink in and then continued, Yet, Without such an official secrecy oath, you will not be legally bound to secrecy. What we would hope, then, is that you will agree not to reveal this sequence of events for at least 10 years hence. I can assure you that there are very good reasons for this, but after 10 years, our mission will have disappeared, as it were. If you cannot see your way clear to making and upholding this agreement, we will give you a good dinner, discuss remote viewing, and get you back to New York by late tonight. For the record here, other groups had invited me to work on many other kinds of sensitive projects, and had even signed non-disclosure agreements. So except for the ultra-secrecy of this one, which I thought merely overdramatic, it was not at all that unusual. Although I was hot on the trail of thousand-dollar days, I frowned at Mr. Axelrod. I guess you knew I would accept, or I would not be here now, would I? Good. Very good, then. We have specific procedures here. We will work in this room, if that's suitable. There is an adjoining room with a bed, and it's comfortable. It has a TV you can watch. You will see only myself and the two who brought you here. They will be your constant companions when you're not with me. One will spend the nights in this room, and the other will be stationed directly outside the door. They do not know why you're here, and they need not know. If you need to exercise, we have a small gym, we have shorts and gear and a small pool if you want to swim. If you have any kind of special food preferences, we believe we can supply them. Just ask for what you want. You smoke Tipperillo cigars, uh, we have some for you, as well as better ones if you wish. Can you work under these circumstances? I hardly knew what to say by this time. So bravely, I ventured, I guess that depends on the work, or the task, or whatever it is. Then... I know I'm not supposed to ask anything, but are those two guys really twins? Mr. Axelrod smiled again. What do you think? I think they are. Well, then that's resolved, isn't it? Did you enjoy the geological specimens at the museum this morning? I decided to ask no more questions. Presumably, I'd been observed ever since I left New York. Whatever was happening must be important, since it obviously was costing someone a great amount of dollar and man hours. And $1,000 a day was a lot of money back in 1975. It's the equivalent of almost $5,000 a day in 2020 dollars. Inflation, which is a phenomenon caused by the government or its agents printing ever more money, has caused money from back then to be worth five times more than it's worth now. So bear that in mind when Ingo says... 
openly confessed my attention was on the $1,000 day thing. By 1975, I'd been in psi research for about five years. When it was arranged for me to take part in those earlier experiments, the first order of business in the minds of the researchers was to figure out how to pay me the least possible and preferably to pay me nothing. The $1,000 day was a real and much-needed windfall for me, so I worried about the many ways it could get messed up. Failing to provide good psi data was one way, but as I'd found, if one talks about things people don't understand, then they lose interest. Another way was not to provide what the client wanted. I had no idea what Axelrod wanted. Maybe they, whomever they were, were looking for good places to build moon bases. Maybe they had lost a secret spacecraft or something along those lines. With the equivalent of $5,000 a day on the line, Inga was willing to go to work for them, and Mr. Axelrod started asking him about the remote viewing experiments he had done. It was clear that Axelrod already knew about the Jupiter experiment and had been pleased by the results of it. He wanted to hire Ingo to view a similar target, but Ingo had a request. Axel, I don't like to do tasks unless there's a good chance of obtaining feedback, and you represent one of those times I've been dragged into a situation where, obviously, I'm not going to get any, am I? Well, that poses a bit of a problem considering our situation here, but surprisingly, some feedback will become available in other ways. I'll send it to you in an unmarked envelope. Axelrod then asked if Ingo had ever remotely viewed the moon. No, we never tried the moon because too much is known about it. It would not constitute a good experiment because of that. People would think I'd learned about the moon or looked at it through telescopes or something. What about the reverse side of the moon, the side that is always turned away from Earth? No one could accuse you of being able to visually see that. But still, the NASA's moon missions have encircled it, and there are lots of photos and stuff. Axel laughed. Well, we want you to go to the moon for us and describe what you see. I have some moon coordinates prepared, about 10 altogether. Is that too many? Well, no, depending on stress factors, but, but I don't like to do too many at once because I fear I'll begin to superimpose my impressions. Well, we may not have to do all of them. Do you know who George Leonard is, or have you ever heard of him? No. Axelrod reiterated the question and asked if he were quite sure that he didn't know George Leonard, but Ingo didn't have any idea. Later, Ingo went to have a workout in the gym, and the twins accompanied him, just like Axelrod had said they would. Only now he got a better look at them, and they spoke to him. Now I could distinguish a difference between them. One had a southern drawl, while the other had what I thought was Australian one, of all things. Gradually, I began to realize that the two actually did not look alike. They only seemed to in some inexplicable way. Suddenly, I could see great differences between them. Their physiques were almost identical, but I eventually noticed that one was slightly smaller. One, the Australian, was older. Their square jaws and green eyes were alike, but the noses were different, and one had narrower lips. Their hair was identically close-shaven in the well-known military style, but now I felt they were different. So they were not twins after all nor even brothers, doubtlessly. And this reveals something that will be significant later in today's episode and in next week's episode. When Ingo asked Axelrod if the men were twins, he didn't answer directly. Instead, he asked what Ingo thought. At the time, Ingo thought they were, and Axelrod simply said, well, that's resolved, isn't it? 
Axelrod didn't lie to Ingo, but he also didn't correct Ingo's mistaken belief. He gave a non-committal answer that let Ingo suppose what he was already supposing. In any event, according to Ingo, early the next morning, he and Axelrod sat down for the first remote viewing session on the moon, or Luna, as it's called. So where are you from? Tycho City. <laughs> oh, a lunar schooner. I haven't heard that in a long time. Yeah, picked it up from my granddad. Of course he still calls Luna the moon, like it's the only one or something. Well, nobody who's ever lived on the moon calls it Luna either. That's just something they say on Earth. Axelrod pressed record on a tape recorder he had, and Ingo began his remote viewing process. And we'll hear all about that in just a second. But first, uh, this is a, a great cliffhanger moment to thank our patrons. Uh, we want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Shiloh S., Ariel L., Michael P., James B., and Karen D. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we also want to give you an update on our financial status here at StarQuest. A while back, we sent out a couple of audio updates letting you know that we'd gotten some grim news from our accountant and that our reserve funds were depleted to the point that we wouldn't be able to keep making the shows for more than a few more months if we didn't reach financial stability at the break-even point. Well, the good news is we have made great progress. People have really responded. We are almost to our goal. We are less than $500 a month away from our goal. That represents just probably a few dozen more patrons. And so if you've been thinking about becoming a patron, please go ahead and sign up. You can go to sqpn.com slash give. And we have various thank you gifts we want to give you in exchange for your patronage as a thank you for your patronage. We are like like I said, really close to the break-even point here, less than $500 a month in new patrons, and we will be there. And the good news, extra good news, is that when we make the break-even point, we have a special way we're going to celebrate. The folks at the Faith Life Corporation that makes Verbum Catholic Bible software have donated a number of packages, some of which are quite expensive, of Verbum Catholic Bible software, and we're going to be giving them away. So once we hit our goal, which is less than $500 a month away now, we're going to uh, do a random set of drawings from all of the people who are patrons at that time. This will be hopefully at the end of September, assuming we make it to our goal by then. And Dom, uh, can you, what can you tell us about those packages? Faith Life has been very generous with us, and these are some great verbum packages. And I have to say, even if you're not uh, consider yourself a Bible scholar, even if you just want to use these in a devotional uh, sense, uh, help in your prayer life, help you with your daily uh, reading of the, the mass readings, this is excellent. And so they have several different packages. Uh, they have their starter package, which has uh, they say 285 resources it includes like things like the Vatican II documents and Faith of the Early Fathers, Volumes 1 to 3. And of course, all the Bible uh, versions that you'd, you'd want. Uh, and the Catechism. And the Catechism and uh, Lectio Divina uh, Workflow and all these great helps for your scripture reading, your faith reading. So that's the the, the starter package. 
Uh, and that really retails like at three hundred dollars, so that's that's nice just to begin with. Uh, they'll they're also giving us some packages to give away uh, in the bronze level, which goes up to fi- over five hundred and fifty different resources, different books, and other ones. Uh, then there's the silver level, which is uh, over eight hundred resources, and this one retails for a thousand dollars. So it, this is the silver level, and then uh, we'll have one at the platinum level this is a over two thousand dollar value that they usually sell it for which has over uh, almost 1500 resources uh things like the uh, fathers of the church saint augustine 30 volumes uh the navarre bible new testament which i i love i love the navarre new testament uh has such great resources in it uh that's 12 volumes uh just an amazing packages that uh, you're gonna be, uh, get access to and that uh, we'll be able to give away to patrons who are patrons as of the end of september uh, or when we're able to make the goal and right. thus do the drawing but hopefully at the end of september and just so you know this is the bible software that i use every day so uh, Verbum Bible Software, I highly recommend it. It's a really great resource. It makes Bible study and devotional reading very easy. So please help us uh, make up the goal. We are so close to hitting the point of financial stability. We really look forward to getting there. And we really look forward to giving away this outstanding Bible software to our patrons. So to have an entry in the drawings we'll do, just Go to sqpn.com slash give and link over to Patreon and sign up. And if you're already a patron, you can also increase your donation if that's something you're able to do. Whether you do or not, if you're one of our patrons, even if you've been supporting us for years at the time of this drawing, you will be entered into the drawing. So all of our patrons will be in on that. And thank you so much for your support. Just go to sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at AaronV.com. And by Dr. Jimmy Turner, your guide to practical leadership at drjimmyturner.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. So, Jimmy, what did Ingo see when he viewed the first set of coordinates on the far side of the moon? Once Ingo established contact with the moon, Axelrod gave him his first set of coordinates, and Ingo found himself in darkness. According to Ingo, I began trying to make sense of the impressions I was acquiring. Well, I seem to be near a cliff of some kind. It goes upward, quite high, made of some kind of dark rock. There is whitish sand, a fluffy kind of sand. Away from the cliff formation, there's a broad expanse of some kind. There's some patterns in the sand or whatever it is. Not quite like sand. What do the patterns look like? Axel interjected. He was not supposed to intrude with questions, but he had, so I went with it. Well, and I now close my eyes. Sort of like little tufts or dunes, as if the wind had made a kind of pattern. After a moment of considering these little dunes, but there's not supposed to be any wind on the moon, is there? No atmosphere. Yet I can sense something like atmosphere. I'm getting a little confused. Let's take a break. Was I mistaken? Axelrod seemed to be looking at me in a rather strange way, as if swallowing a desire to speak. Well, I went on, what they actually look like are 
like rows of largest tractor tread marks. But I don't understand how this could be, so they must be something I don't understand. They are just marks of some kind. Strange, though. I was silent for a moment. Axel, do you want... Well, am I supposed to try to see metals or something here, or what? I'm just near this cliff here. It has a kind of shiny quality to it. Something like obsidian. Axel answered. No, we can go on to the next coordinate now. So, at the first set of coordinates, Ingo thought he saw patterns on the surface of the moon that he compared to tractor tread marks, and he had the impression of an atmosphere which he did not expect. When they went to the next set of coordinates, Ingo was puzzled because the impressions he was getting were even more unexpected for the lunar surface, and he thought his viewpoint must have slipped back to Earth. They therefore took a break before trying again. When Ingo returned to the second set of coordinates, his impressions were striking. He sensed being in a crater, again on the far side of the moon, and they knew that because he, the moon was full, which meant the far side was dark at the time, and he'd had that impression of darkness. But the crater seemed to be filled with a greenish haze, which was illuminated somehow. He then perceived where the light was coming from two sets of lights high up off the ground, which he compared to the lights you'd find in football fields. They were giving off a greenish light. Ingo once again thought that his viewpoint must have switched back to Earth, but Axelrod wanted more information about the lights. Then Ingo asked whether the Russians might have built a moon base, and Axelrod wouldn't answer him one way or the other. When Ingo focused on the coordinates again, he realized why the greenish light was diffused and got the impression that it was because of dust floating in the air, which implied an atmosphere. He also got the impression of tractor treads all over the place, and he had the impression of a very large tower on the crater's edge. As he viewed the site, Ingo asked himself out loud whether either the Soviet or American space programs had the technology needed to put such large structures on the moon, and he concluded that they didn't. I stared incredulously at Axel. You mean, am I to assume this stuff is not ours, not made on Earth? Axel raised his eyebrows, trying not to grin. Quite a surprise, isn't it? I had a sense he was trying not to be emotional. As their sessions progressed, Axelrod gave Ingo more coordinates, some of which seemed to be nothing but moonscapes, with nothing interesting to see. But at other locations, Ingo saw interesting things, sketched them, and gave the sketches to Axelrod. I found towers, machinery, lights of different colors, strange-looking buildings. I found bridges whose function I couldn't figure out. One of them just arched out and never landed anywhere. There were a lot of domes of various sizes, round things, things like small saucers with windows. These were stored next to crater sides, sometimes in caves, sometimes in what looked like airfield hangars. I had problems estimating sizes, but some of the things were very large. I found long tube-like things, machinery tractor-like things, going up and down hills, straight roads extending some miles, obelisks which had no apparent function. There were large platforms on domes, large cross-like structures. Holes being dug into crater walls and floors, obviously having to do with some kind of mining or earth-moving operations. There were nets over craters, houses in which someone obviously lived, except that I couldn't see who, save in one case. 
And that one case led to the end of the experiment. I saw some kind of people busy at work on something. Couldn't figure it out. The place was dark. The air was filled with a fine dust, and there was some kind of illumination, like a dark lime green fog or mist. The thing about them was that they were they either were human or looked exactly like us, but they were all males, as I could well see, since they were all naked. I had absolutely no idea why. They seemed to be digging into a hillside or a cliff. As I described, they must have some way of creating a good environment, warm and with air in it. But why would they be going around naked? No answer was forthcoming to this self-question, but being there in my psychic state, as I felt I was, some of those guys started talking excitedly and gesticulating. Two of them pointed in my direction. Immediately, I felt like running away and hiding, which I guess I psychically did, since I lost sight of this particular imaging. I think they spotted me, Axel. They were pointing at me, I think. How could they do that unless they have some kind of high psychic perceptions too? Axel said in a calm, low voice, so low I hardly heard it at first. Please come quickly away from that place. My eyes were wide as understanding drained in. You already know they are psychic, don't you? Axel raised his eyebrows and gave a deep sigh. And at that point, he abruptly closed his folders. I think we had better end our work here. I was quite surprised, but I had not fallen off the psychic truck just yesterday. You think, you already know that they have some kind of uh, telepathy, that they could trace where this psychic probe is coming from, is that it? Axel had started smiling again, but obviously was not going to respond. Come on, Axel, loosen up a little. But I was not to be deterred. Would they kill an Earth psychic if they felt he or she was good enough to spy on them? There's no conclusive evidence to suggest that. I gritted my teeth. No conclusive evidence? What the hell does that mean? My voice had climbed several octaves. It's very difficult for us to assess any of this. We don't know, but that they do have things and capabilities we here are trying to understand is very apparent. Whether they spotted you or not will be unclear, uh, but we have to put no prejudgments on what guides our mission. At any rate, we don't want you to be put at any more risk. Let's eat some dinner and get you back to New York. And that was the end of the experiment. Axelrod didn't give him any more coordinates to view. In the discussion that followed, Axelrod reminded him of the 10-year pledge of confidentiality he had made. Not to worry, Axel, I replied. I've no intention of demolishing my official research work by introducing something so far out as claiming I've seen extraterrestrials working away on the moon. No one would believe me anyway. I have abided by that promise well past the 10-year mark. The reasons I have now decided to write about all this will become clear in later chapters. As I departed, Mr. Axelrod asked that if he again had need of me, would I be interested? Probably, I responded. For how could I not be? E.T.'s on the moon in some official investigative agency? Who could resist? Good. But my name, Axelrod, is now retired uh, when you leave here and will not be used again. We will be in touch with you in some other fashion, which I will make sure you recognize. If anyone ever asks you about Mr. Axelrod or about this place or asks you if you know anything about it, such inquiries will not be coming from us. Please act accordingly for our sakes and your own. 
and he didn't hear from Axelrod for a year. When he got home, Ingo reconstructed some of his sketches of sights on the moon from memory and put them away for safekeeping. Now, you'll remember that when they first met, Axelrod had asked Ingo if he had ever heard of someone named George Leonard, and Ingo said that he hadn't. Well, at some point in 1976, during the summer, I think, what might be called the second chapter of the Axelrod affair opened up. For I received in the mail a plain envelope which did not bear a return address or even a postmark, although it did have stamps. The envelope contained a book and nothing more. It was entitled, Somebody Else is on the Moon. The author's name was George Leonard. I spent the next few hours reading it and then reread it two more times. Apparently, at the time of my ultra-secret visit, Mr. Axelrod had already known that this book was coming out, and of course he'd been interested in whether I knew the author or not. Leonard apparently had obtained NASA photographs of the moon, which are, after all, in the public domain because most of NASA's work is funded by our tax-paying money. What NASA knows, the frontispiece of the book began, but won't divulge. With careful logic and reason, George Leonard has studied all the data, including official NASA photographs and the astronauts' Apollo tapes, to prove his theory of a highly advanced underground civilization that is working on the surface of the moon, mining, manufacturing, communicating, and building. Leonard's book was filled with verifiable data, official photos, and sketches of structures, etc. he created from the photos. Well, I can tell you I ran to my own drawings and spent a week comparing and recomparing them to the sketches and photos George Leonard had provided in his own book. Many of Leonard's sketches resembled some of mine. Yes, indeed, the mysterious Mr. Axelrod had provided me feedback, as promised, for there could be no doubt that it was his jolly self that sent Leonard's book to me. George Leonard's book, Somebody Else is on the Moon, was published in 1976. It's still in print, and we'll have a link to it. After his adventure with Mr. Axelrod, Ingo returned to his work with Putoff and Targ at SRI in the San Francisco area, and in August and September of 1976, he made several trips down to Los Angeles. While he was there, he decided to throw a dinner party with some friends, so he and a buddy went to the supermarket to get supplies. When this happened, I had decided to start the meal with artichokes stuffed with crab and breadcrumbs topped with cheese melted with a fine brandy. In order to reduce shopping time, I gave Conrad a list of other comestibles. He went in the direction of meats, and I went in the direction of the veggies. The supermarket had huge tables loaded with artichokes. At one of the artichoke tables was standing a ravishing woman. Ingo was struck by her beauty, and he observed her as she was going through the artichokes. But he had a sudden and unexpected impression that, despite the fact she looked like a gorgeous human being, she was actually an alien. Then he turned and saw something else. Way down the lineup of vegetable cases I recognized, of all outstanding and possible things, one of the twins. He was watching the woman. He saw that I saw him, and there immediately rose in my mind an image of a white card. Please do not speak, and please act normal. Trying to gather my surprised wits, by now somewhat shattered, the silliest thought then occurred to me. Well, if one of the twins is here, of all places, then the other one must be too. And sure enough, the other twin was at the opposite end of the vegetable lineup, 
and he was watching the woman, too. Ingo quickly finished his shopping and left the store. A few days later, back in New York, he got a phone call, which he interpreted as being on behalf of Mr. Axelrod, even though, as planned, Axelrod was no longer using that name. The phone rang early one evening, and a cheery female voice on the other end asked, Mr. Swan? I said yes. A friend of yours would like to talk with you. Okay. He wants to talk to you on another telephone. Is it convenient for you to be in Grand Central Terminal at 7.30 tonight? I suppose so, I replied. Very good, then. Go to the vicinity of the information box in the Central Concourse and wait there until you see someone you will recognize. And she hung up without a goodbye. Ingo then went to the specified information box at Grand Central Station where he saw one of the twins, this time dressed as a vagrant. After some security rigmarole, he led Swan to a phone booth, dialed for him, and put him in touch with Mr. Axelrod. I'm sorry to have to do it this way, but we had to get you to a phone which scrambles our conversation and where you can be watched. I was about to say hello, but Axelrod's voice became very firm. Do not say anything except answers to my questions. I may seem a little aggressive, but we would like to know why you were in that Los Angeles supermarket. I was staying with some friends, and we decided to cook dinner. I wanted orange aspic with lamb chops, and I wanted to stuff artichokes. We didn't have any. There was no other reason. Had you ever seen that woman before or seen her since? No. Why were you looking at her? Well, she was extremely sexy and nearly falling out of the few clothes she had on. I. I first saw her from the rear and just tried to see what the front looked like up close. She was messing with the artichokes. You're sure there was no other reason? Absolutely. What did you think of her? Now it was my turn to be silent for a moment. Well, I don't know why, but I got the impression she wasn't, well, exactly like us. What was she like? I nearly choked on the word. Extraterrestrial? I've no idea. It was just an impression. She had some kind of vibes or something. She sent chills up my spine, and I felt the hair on the back of my neck starting to stand up. Have you felt you have seen people like her before? If you mean, have I seen extraterrestrials before? The answer is no. Strange people? Sure. But nothing like I got from her. Why did you run away so fast? After I spotted the twins, I realized something was going on. The whole thing scared me. I'll buy it. Do you think she noticed you psyched her out? I have no idea. She was into the artichokes. The whole thing happened too fast, but she never looked at me. At least I couldn't say for sure, since her eyes were hidden behind those strange purple glasses. Think, man. This is very important. Did she notice you at all? I don't think she saw me at all, and she was there when I got there. A tone of desperation had entered into my voice. Silence. I feel obliged to tell you that she is very dangerous. If you ever see her again, especially if she approaches you, make every effort to put distance between you and her, but act natural. Always do it naturally. Before he hung up, Axelrod asked Ingo how his remote viewing studies were going at SRI, and Ingo said they were proceeding well, and they were trying to get his accuracy up to 65%. 
When Ingo said he thought that this was an achievable goal, Axelrod was intrigued and told him to let him know once it happened. He said to write the number 65 on an ordinary piece of paper and put it under the blotter on his desk at SRI. It actually took a year to get Ingo's accuracy up to 65%, but once this was achieved, he did as instructed, and in 1977, he put the piece of paper under his blotter. He checked it every day for about three months, but it remained there. Then, one day, it was gone, and in its place, there was a dust-like powder with two words scrawled in it by someone's finger. Expect contact. A few days later, on a Friday in July of 1977, he was starting to have lunch with a group of people at the SRA dining room when Ingo spotted Mr. Axelrod, who went into the men's room. Ingo followed him in, and Axelrod asked him if he could invent an excuse for his friends to take a trip over the weekend and see something important. Ingo agreed and went back and told his colleagues that he had forgotten that he was supposed to join some friends in San Francisco for a long weekend, and he exited the building. Outside, Axelrod drove them in a jeep and told Ingo they might have the opportunity to see a UFO close up. He said that they needed to take a trip and then hike to a place where a UFO showed up at intervals. They drove to the San Jose airport and then took a private chartered Learjet and flew north for about five hours to a site Ingo supposed was in Alaska. After they arrived, the twins drove them up into some mountains for a couple of hours, and then they hiked for 40 minutes to a small lake. According to Ingo, they sat there for some time, and Axelrod told him not to move unless told to, because the UFOs could detect heat, noise, and motion. Then, as some fog was coming up, one of the twins gave a hand signal, and Axelrod said that the UFO appearance had begun. The gray fog changed, first into luminous neon blue, and then into angry purple. At that point, Axel and one of the twins put a firm hand on each of my shoulders, and it was a good thing they did. A network of purple, red, and yellow lightning bolts shot in all crazy directions through the cloud, and I would have jumped up if not held down. And then, there it was. Somewhat transparent at first, but in the next second, as if fading up, like the movie term, out of nowhere, there it was, solidly visible over the lake whose reflecting waters I could now clearly see. And it was getting bigger. I don't really know what I had expected, but I had assumed that what I would see, if anything, would be something like a flying saucer. No chance of a saucer here, baby, because it was triangular, and its top angle sort of inverted in pulses, so that overall it appeared to be diamond-shaped. At that moment, in my astonishment, we could hear a wind coming, and it moved past us like a tangible magnetic field, rustling the pine trees around us so much that some cones and branches fell on us. The two firm hands on my shoulders tightened, warning me not to move in pure physical reaction. At the same time, ruby-red laser-like beams began shooting out from the thing, which incredibly was growing even more in size, while still stationary in its original position over the lake. One of the twins now talked softly, although the sound of his voice was like thunder to me. They're enveloping the area. They're going to spot us. I had no time to wonder about what he meant. Indeed, some of the laser-red beams had begun blasting pine trees, of all things. At the same time, the thing had now increased its size to what may have been about 90 feet wide. 
The whole of this so far had been accomplished in complete silence, and even the electric bolts had not crackled. The blasting of the trees, though, was now audible, while at the same time I could begin to hear low-frequency pulsations. Axelrod said, They're blasting deer or porcupines or something in the forest. The beams sense biological body heat, and they're sure to home in on us. At that moment, the two hands tightened on my shoulders, and I was dragged and practically thrown back down into the Arroyo. There was a terrific pop where we had been, and some large branches of nearby pines cascaded down on us. That was my last sight of the triangular thing, but in that last moment, I could see the water of the lake surging upward, like a waterfall going upward, as if being sucked into the machine. And that was the encounter. In the process of being hustled away from the craft, Ingo injured his leg and it was bleeding some. Axelrod tried to attend to the wound. The four remained hidden until the craft left, and afterwards Axelrod tried to debrief Ingo. After all, that was the reason that he had brought him here. With Ingo's remote viewing accuracy up to 65%, Axelrod wanted to see what impressions he would get from the UFO. At first, Ingo laughed at him pointing out that he needed to be calm, cool, and collected in order to do remote viewing. However, upon thinking about it, he thought maybe he did have some impressions. Among them were that this was a drone, not a crewed ship. And as seemed obvious, it was on some kind of resupply mission, which is why it took water from the lake. However, he didn't know why it would target wildlife in the woods and he was hesitant to do too much speculating about it because of analytical overlay, the tendency of the rational mind to overwhelm psychic perceptions with its own ideas. Ingo thought he might do better in a future encounter once he knew what to expect, and he said he'd be willing to do this again. I laughed and relaxed. Axel, I'm ready to go for it again. Who wouldn't be? Well... Probably that will not be possible. I shouldn't tell you, but our mission will be disbanded shortly and the work will be picked up by others because of strategic security reasons involved. Others who will not mix in with psychics, I take it? You got it. Next week, you will be summoned for a complete physical examination, ostensibly in line with overseeing the health status of the people on your project. We just want to be sure that you experience no physical damage. The physicians performing the examination will be ordinary doctors who have no knowledge of our existence. Can you explain your leg injury in some sensible way? I won't have time next week. We're going to Catalina Island to do an underwater remote viewing experiment with a submarine. And the experiments off Catalina Island down here near San Diego are well documented. In fact, they were the subject of an episode of Leonard Nimoy's In Search Of series, which we'll have a link to. But Ingo never heard from Axelrod and his crew again. And in 1998, well after the 10-year confidentiality pledge had expired, he decided to write about it in the book Penetration, whose title is a reference to how he apparently psychically penetrated the alien activities on the moon. In the book, he not only talks about his experiences with Axelrod, but also shares his theories about the moon and about human and alien telepathy. Also, as I picked up from reading in other sources, Ingo really loves coming up with and using jargon. So in the analytical parts of the book, we get sentences like this. Brace yourself, Dom. <laughs> Chapter 21, The Problem of Intellectual Phase Locking. 
It is quite easy to assume that there is an Earth-side cover-up regarding some kind of space-side factor that seems to necessitate the cover-up, at least in the minds of those insider officials who might have access to all relevant information packages. On the other hand, just outside the margins of the cover-up, an entire counter-cover-up industry has come into existence, embodied in thousands of books and articles about what the cover-up is covering up. <laughs> yeah, really needs a copy editor. Yeah. Fortunately, this kind of jargon isn't nearly as present in the less analytical parts of the book where Ingo isn't in analysis mode and is just telling the story. So, Jimmy, where do we go from here? Next episode, we will be the ones to go into analysis mode and look at how credible Ingo's story is. Was it just something he made up out of whole cloth, or is he telling events as he remembers them? If anything like this did happen, how accurately did Ingo interpret it? Axelrod often let Ingo keep his assumptions, so could something different have been going on compared to what Ingo thought? And... How accurate were Ingo's remote viewing results? Are there actually aliens on the moon? So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer the listeners in the meantime? Well, we'll have a link to Ingo Swan's book, Penetration, and also Targ and Putoff's book, Mind Reach, where they described their early experiments in the 1970s. Also, George Leonard's book, Somebody Else is on the Moon. We'll have a link to the CIA copy of the Jupiter Experiment, in their online reading room. Also, Swan's sketch of Jupiter from his experiment, including the ring around it. We'll have a link to a short video on the current state of understanding regarding what Jupiter's core is like, so you can hear about the most recent results. We'll also have a link to Henry, the elephant in the Smithsonian, and we'll have a link to Leonard Nimoy's In Search of episode about the experiment off Catalina Island. It's called Psychic Sea Hunt. Excellent. I am so looking forward to the next episode and coming to the conclusion of this story. Uh, but in the meantime, we have mysterious feedback from our listeners, some great feedback on the Cottingly Fairies discussion we had. Uh, let's start with Michael on Facebook, who writes, You had me for the better part of the show. I was ready to believe in fairies. Great episode. And then similarly on YouTube, uh, Gray writes, as someone unfamiliar with the Cottingly fairies, I was surprised and gladdened to hear about them. Halfway through your episode, I was almost ready to go around saying, I believe in fairies. Ha ha. I'm a bit saddened to hear they're fake. Well, even though the Cottingly fairies were fake, that doesn't rule out the possibility that fairies are real. So we'll have to look into this question again. <laughs> Calvin on Facebook writes, I still think they were aliens. And who knows? Maybe they were because it's, it's always, always aliens. aliens. <laughs> Gav on YouTube writes, they told the truth at first, but were later pressed to claim it was a hoax. You can't prove I'm wrong. No, I can't. But then I haven't tried. <laughs> Emma writes on Facebook. I loved this episode. Once again, a great one. I can't help but be rem remembered of how this story and the photos that go with it were, as Jimmy and Dom, as fans of Doctor Who may know, used in an episode of Torchwood called Small Worlds. I immediately recognized the photo when I saw it here because of that episode. Previously, I thought the, episode, the photo we see in the image for the podcast was just a photo created by the Torchwood series for the, that episode. Yeah, no, apparently Torchwood got 
the uh, based an episode in part around the Cottingly fairy photos. I had not been aware of that. I know Doctor Who really well, but Torchwood has never been to my taste, so I've seen almost none of it. Yeah, same here. Uh, David on Facebook writes, I live just a few miles down the road from where these events apparently took place in Cottingly. In fact, it's only a few miles around the corner from the relatively recent Poltergeist film Lights Out, set at 30 East Drive, Pontefract, Yorkshire, which is another apparent true story. That's cool. It's great to hear from someone who lives in the area, David. Yes. I'm sorry I pronounced Yorkshire wrong. It's the Yorkshire. But uh, I'll, I'll do my well, best uh, to get it right. Next maybe. Time. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I've had comments on my accents, but uh, I'll move on. <laughs> Kelly writes on Facebook. I wonder if the explosion of interest and belief in the accuracy of the photos had to do with the fact that this came out during World War One and the public was just so desperate for a happy story that people like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle ignored the obvious because they wanted to believe in a magical world. I think this was just escapism. I can't rule out that the grim reports coming back from the war during World War One may have played some role in this, but there were a couple of other trends that were already well underway before World War One even started that led to this. One of them, and actually they were both religions that started in the 1800s. One of them was a religion known as spiritualism which involved contact with the dead. And Arthur Conan Doyle was involved in spiritualist researches. Uh, he, I don't know that he himself would have called himself a spiritualist, but he was at least involved in, in the kind of researching that spiritualists were doing. And the other was theosophy, which was a religion founded by Madame Helena Blavatsky that explicitly talked about hidden races and fairies and things like that. And so th I think those trends also played a big role in this story, whatever else, as well as just, you know, children's fairy tales playing a role in addition to whatever else, uh, whatever other role World War One may have played. Uh, Cindy writes on YouTube, I have two younger daughters. One is 21. The other is 18 years old. When they were kids, I think around the age of 10 and eight, one day in the late afternoon, they came running inside, very excited and shocked. I had never seen them both like that. They held on to me very excitedly, trying to tell me what they had just seen. They seemed a little frightened. I was trying to make them calm down and tell me what happened, and they kept telling me they had seen fairies. I asked them to describe it to me. Each time they told me the same, that they were blue and white-colored. They are now both very mature working adults, and I asked them about it recently. To this day, they've never doubted what they had seen. They still remember it like yesterday. I don't know exactly what they saw, but it was something supernatural, and I believe them. And they could have seen something. People sometimes do see strange things, and the explanations can range from the natural to the supernatural. In fact, there is a former employee of Catholic Answers and Ignatius Press. He's not an apologist, and he's passed on now. But someday I'll tell you the story of how he saw a small human being-like figure that appeared and disappeared under mysterious circumstances and that seemed kind of like an elf or a fairy or something. Mm. And he didn't talk this up. He was very serious about it. But we'll talk about that when we come back to this subject in the future. My wife has started a nighttime read aloud with the kids of Terry Pratt, one of Terry Pratchett's books. And I mm -hmm. would really love for his picked seas to be real. <laughs> if any of you have read any of his books, uh, because they are hilarious little uh, 
Scottish fairies. Picked seas. Picked seas. Yes, like like picked. Like but, a picked. Yes, but uh, with names like Rob anybody and uh, Wee Jock and things like that. And they're it is as we, with Terry Pratchett, hilarious. So I think uh, I'm going to keep my distance from Rob anybody. <laughs> exactly. That's a good idea. All right, uh, that's some great uh, feedback, everyone. Thank you so much, uh, Jimmy. What do we have for mysterious headlines? Well, we mentioned recently that the Defense Department has announced that it has an ongoing UFO program that's being organized and is going to try to release some, at least some results, maybe every six months. Uh, there's more information that has come out about that now. So we'll have a link to a story about the new Defense Department. UFO or UAP for Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, that's the new term, study program that's been established. We'll also have a link to the Defense Department press release describing this. It's very brief, but it's the official story. And then we'll have a link to some analysis of the UFO program that the Defense Department has by UFO experts who are both favorable to UFOs and skeptical of UFOs. And so you get both sides of the story or analysis of what this new Defense Department program or newly announced Defense Department program may mean. Excellent. Uh, so as we wrap things up, uh, first, I want to send some thanks uh, once again to my wife, Melanie, who provided the female narrator voice today. Yeah, thanks, Melanie. And uh, we want to also give a reminder to folks about that uh, Verbum giveaway, but also our final push to reach break even and our financial stability. Yeah, we're like we said, we're less than $500 away per month. So please go to sqpn.com slash give, become one of our patrons, and then hopefully we'll make that goal by the end of September. We'll do the drawing then and all of our patrons at that time will have the opportunity to win one of those really great Verbum Bible software packages uh, like the ones that I use. Excellent. So uh, that's it from us this week. What are your theories about what Ingo Swan reported in his book, Penetration? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. So, Jimmy, uh, let us know what's our next episode going to entail. As we said, we're going to go into analysis mode and look at Ingo's claims from the perspectives of faith and reason. Excellent. So remember to like this episode on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on Facebook, retweet it on Twitter, help us get the word out about uh, the, uh, the podcast. You all have been doing such a great job, and we really appreciate you doing that. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our, our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>